0: Time, a counseling supervision podcast on the PodTalk Network. Executive producer, Dr. Marty Gensius with your hosts, Dr. Angela Schubert and Gina Martin. Today's title, Clinical Supervision Time,
1: we have Dr. Jacob Priest who will be talking to us about his experiences in conducting supervision in a clinical setting.
0: Jacob B. Priest, Ph.D., LMFT, is an assistant professor of couple and family therapy and the director of the LGBTQ Clinic in the College of Education at the University of Iowa. Jacob received his master's degree in marriage and family therapy from Purdue University Calumet in 2010 and his Ph.D. from Florida State University in 2013. Jacob researches the role of family functioning on mental and physical health. Jacob also serves on the editorial board of the Journal of Marriage and Family Therapy, the Journal of Couple and Relationship Therapy, and the American Journal of Family Therapy. In addition to his research activities, Jacob maintains a small private practice at the Counseling Center of Iowa City. So hello and welcome, Jacob. We're so happy to have you be a part of the show today and have you here to talk about your supervision experiences.
2: My pleasure, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your experience with supervision?
2: Yeah, so as you kind of mentioned in my introduction, I'm an assistant professor in the couple and family therapy program at the University of Iowa. Um, and we are a PhD program. And so we most of the students who come to us already have master's degree from AMFT or, or um, American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy accredited programs. So a lot of our students come to us um, already with some clinical uh, skills, but we have built in a, in, in our program, we have the LGBTQ clinic where we try to kind of expand those skills, especially with uh, a population that many students don't have the opportunity to work with. So um, my role as the director of the clinic is I direct practicum and uh, provide supervision. So the cool thing about our clinic is it's not just CFT students. We also have students from counselor education supervision. We have students from social work and we have uh, psychiatry residents, medical residents who um, get supervision training with us. So we have um, cool opportunities to get different points of view in our supervision process. And also me as a supervisor, I have the AMFT approved supervisor designation. So. Um, that's just a special designation they give you if you um, have you've completed a certain amount of hours and a certain amount of supervision of supervision.
0: Awesome. Can you tell us a little bit more about that um, that certification and how you accrued those hours and what was the process like?
2: Yeah, so um, AMFT has certain requirements for all uh, approved supervisors. And so that consists of getting, providing, I'm not going to remember the, the, the exact numbers, I'd have to look them up, but it's, um, you have to give a certain number of hours of providing supervision and a certain number of hours of supervision of your supervision by a approved supervisor. And then you have to do it for about, continually provide supervision for two years. So once you've completed all that training, you're eligible to apply for the approved su- supervisor designation. And then that is just um, an application where you have to write your theory of supervision and talk about um, your experiences and have your supervisor of supervision sign off saying that you, they think that you've met the requirements to be considered an approved supervisor.
1: Well, I was just thinking of what a tongue twister <laughs> you had said about su- the supervisor who's supervising a supervisee. Is that what you said? <laughs> no. The, the
2: super, so I had an AMFT approved supervisor supervise my supervision of okay. students who are providing therapy. So it kind of goes yeah. through. So sometimes we refer to it as meta vision. So it's supervision of your supervision.
1: I like that. <laughs> So why don't you tell us um, about the context of your clinic?
2: So our clinic, I think, is a really cool partnership um, that was born out of a need uh, uh, of some of the medical doctors across. We call it across the river here at the University of Iowa. So on one side of the river, we have kind of the traditional university and the other side is the medical campus. Um, And the University of Iowa has one of the largest training hospitals in the country. And about eight or nine years ago, um, two doctors, Nicole Nicely and Katie Mboric, started an LGBTQ medical clinic that provided um, a space and time just for individuals who kind of identified underneath the queer umbrella to come and to get affirming medical care. But what happened is they were having a lot of uh, people come to their clinic who wanted uh, medical intervention for their transition. So they wanted to start hormones or have surgery um, to, to treat their gender dysphoria. So they, um, they investigated that, and they wanted to follow what's known as WPATH standards of the World Professional Association of Transgender Health. And these standards require that um, uh, people uh, receive a letter of support from a mental health provider, uh, before starting hormones or having surgery. So as they were talking with their trans patients, they would say, yeah, I have, I have a therapist I'm working with, but they say that I have to work with them for six months before they'll give me a letter. Or they say they're not familiar with this process. And so they wouldn't be giving me a letter. So Nicole and Katie looked around and said, we've got to streamline this process. We know that these medical interventions are so effective at treating gender dysphoria. We have years of research on it. And if we're requiring people to wait six months or a year to get... To get a letter, that's a lot of unnecessary suffering. And so they reached out to our program and said, hey, we're looking for people who would be interested in providing these services for our trans individuals, our trans patients. And we were all about that. This was a year before I got here. And so we began developing a process to uh, meet with uh, patients who were looking for hormone replacement therapy or gender affirming surgery. And started uh, developing mechanisms to meet with them and write letters in a, in a pretty timely manner. We typically just meet with them once and write the letter and develop the processes to get the letters securely over to um, the hospital so people can get access to the care they need. So that kind of grew and grew and grew in, in different realms. So in one context, we do provide those psychosocial assessments and letters of support for trans individuals, but we also provide free individual couple and family therapy for anybody who identifies underneath the queer umbrella and their partners and families. And we wouldn't turn anybody away. So anybody who comes to us and says, we want therapy, we're typically going to create the space for that. Uh, so we've just really tried to make it a very affirming and an inclusive clinic. And so not only has it grown to um, include kind of a therapy component, but the the kind of the other branch of our mission is to really try to educate um, the public and uh, mental health professionals to provide these services. My goal as clinical director is not that everybody will come to our clinic, but they can go anywhere in Iowa. And that their mental health provider will be like, oh, yeah, I know how to um, write this letter for you and I'd be happy to do it. And so we do provide a lot of training uh, to community mental health agencies and other providers to to teach them our process. And then along with that, we actually work pretty closely with the ACLU um, to further uh, trans folks access to care so in this last year um, we wrote letters of support for two people who the ACLU was representing um, to they were suing Medicaid in in the state of Iowa so they could get access to surgery and so that is now in front of the Iowa Supreme Court so we're hoping for good news on that And then just recently I was able to uh, work with the ACLU to serve as a witness in their case to, Um, A discrimination case of a state employee. And we just found out recently that we won that case as well. So we kind of see that as our mission as not only training therapists to uh, provide inclusive and affirming care, but also to make an impact in the broader community, especially here in Iowa. Uh,
1: I have no words for how awesome that all sounds (laughs) besides what I just said. You know, because honestly, like I was thinking of it like, wow, a training clinic where you can go because you have master's level counseling students. Right. And and you have other interns who provides. Do you train everybody on the assessments?
2: Yeah, we do. So we train our psych residents on the assessments. We have uh, uh, students from the counseling psych program that we train on assessments. Uh, We have people from the um, our counselor education supervision program that work with us. And we've actually got our first social work student working with us this semester. So we're really trying to, I see it as people come to our clinic and they're going to get trained on this. And then when they go to their next job, they'll be like, Oh, I know how to do this and I can train you on that. And it hopefully grows out so that people can go in any part of the, of the globe and be like, Oh yeah, I can provide that service for you because that's really what I think inclusive care is all about, is making it so people have uh, as few barriers to get access to the services they need as possible.
1: I love that so much. I really love the, um, the well, maybe not the intuition, but just the, the keenness and how they were observing your people who started all of this and recognizing that there was a need to streamline an assessment process And I, you know, for me, I'm just like, yay, somebody was really paying attention to what was needed and then found a way to execute it in such a way that now can be applied to other people, other agencies, creating more of that inclusive mental health care, professional care.
2: And the cool thing about our partnership with the clinic is uh, the medical clinic. They've actually overhauled all of the intake forms at the universities, hospitals and clinics where they're all about inclusivity when it just comes to like identifying your sex assigned at birth and how you identify now. They train all their residents to, um, you know ask people inclusive questions when it comes to sexual activity and all this other stuff. And so they've done a great job. And we're just trying to bring some of the experiences that they've had in doing that and, and bring it to mental health training.
0: I think that work is so important. Just bridging that gap between the medical clinic and what we do in mental health and and family therapy. I think that's so important. And it's amazing to see how you've been able to do that in a way that will also administer, um, these training practices and best practices within counseling. And students can take that with them when they leave Iowa eventually. So that's really incredible. So in this type of work, um, it seems like, so you mentioned you have master's students, you have PhD students, you have psychiatry students, and now even a social work student. Um, And with all these different students, it's bound that dual relationships might come up. And I'm wondering how you handle uh, dual relationships from a supervision standpoint and from the director standpoint.
2: Yeah, so my my view on dual relationships stands for my training as a family therapist. And um, some of the foundational theories of family therapy talk about boundaries and hierarchies. Uh, especially Salvador Mnuchin, who t- who's kind of the originator of structural family therapy, um, was really big on how boundaries um, e- and even how we organize ourselves in terms of space can affect how boundaries um, occur in families. And I try to bring that um, uh, that, that type of thinking to these dual relationships. In other words, I know that I've got to set clear boundaries with students when it comes to the multiple interactions I have with them. So I try to do that in a couple of ways. So first, the students that I advise in research, I also may supervise in the clinic and have supervised in the clinic. And so I try to separate the physical space when it comes to that. So when we're going to talk about research, we talk about research in my office. That's where we can talk about papers. That's where we can talk about data. We can talk about their ideas. We can explore that. And then I make it intentional that when we move over to the clinic rooms, we are only talking about clinic things. So there's not a conversation about, hey, can I talk to you about this research thing I'm coming up with? Like, yeah, you can, but not right now. Because a lot of times for me, it could be really easy to have those two, two roles I carry bleed over into that. And so I try to be very intentional about the space. And then the other part of that is kind of what I mentioned is, uh, setting those boundaries when people not, I don't think it's necessarily, they're trying to think about it. They've just got a lot going on and they see me and they see me in all these dual roles. And so when they say, Hey, can I talk about it? I love talking about research, so I may want to start bringing that in. But I have to say, yeah, we can talk about this, but I want to make sure we have a clear boundary. And then the other aspect of dual relationships I think is interesting is that not only do I have a dual relationship with my students, but my students have dual relationships with each other, right? Not only are they in a practicum experience together, but some of them hang out together outside of of school, they have classes together, they have different experiences. And so it's also navigating and trying to, you know, when students have conflict with each other, use that space in a way that's indicative to, um, that's meaningful for the supervision process, but doesn't bleed out into those personal issues that they might have, right? If there's a personal issue coming up in the process of supervision. We have to talk about it in the context of supervision and not necessarily try to solve their interpersonal issue because then I'm moving into a realm where I'm getting, to use another structural family therapy word, triangulated into their conflict. And that conflict can bear out um, in the supervision process and that's where I need to deal with it and not let myself get sucked into the interpersonal interpersonal part that might be going on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that triangulation is really key to notice and to be aware of and how to effectively handle that and diffuse some of those um, issues that might arise. So when you're working with students, and um, I I love that being intentional about the space, because I think a lot of our intuition and a lot of our feelings have to do with the spaces that we're in. Um, What about when when um, students are working together? How do you advise them to kind of be intentional about keeping those boundaries firm, but also to be realistic about their um, what they're dealing with in terms of, in the program, working on research, clinically working together, that kind of thing.
2: So when I think about supervision in the context of our program, I think a lot about what I what I what is called isomorphic processes, which means one type of pattern or system um, will replicate in an, in another relationship. Uh, so when I think about clients who come to therapy, I think about how they have a lot going on. There's a lot of different things pulling them in different ways, whether that be family relationships, financial stress, jobs, um, uh, struggles with mental health issues, physical health issues, all that stuff. And then we have the students, right? And the students are are going through us, you know, a lot of pushes and pulls of what they've got to deal with. They've got uh not only do they have life in terms of relationships uh you know parenting all that kind of stuff but they they have to deal with dude, taking a statistics course or um uh, writing a research paper and learning how to do all of that which can be really stressful and then in my world as an assistant professor i also have a lot of pulls. right i have pressures of relationships i have issues with stress and family and and also in my job with tenure and trying to publish and doing all those things. And so when, when it comes to the supervision process, the first thing I always tell my students is trying to develop a sense of presence. Right? And I try to model that for my students. When I'm in supervision, not only do I want to know about um, their clients, but I want to know about them. How how are these processes going? Not in terms of I'm trying to fix their relationships or their stress, but how can these um, processes that are occurring outside their life um, affect how they are in in the therapy room, right? And and focusing on how. The, the stress that's being replicated through the PhD program can, can be transferred into the therapy room if, if therapists aren't aware of how that happens. And in order for me to do that, I have to be aware of that as well. I have to understand how the stress that I carry, the experiences that are occurring in my systems outside of the supervision system that I'm in, Can affect how I react and respond in supervision. So I think about these isomorphic processes and try to get students to see how they replicate, right? Because what I see a lot of times is a student will be talking about a client, and the client will be, the student will say, the client is talking about this process that's going on that's really making them feel stuck. And the student says, I just feel really stuck with, with, with this person in supervision because they feel really, or this person in therapy because they feel really stuck. And so it's on me to say, okay, where are the layers of stuckness? Is it residing in the supervisor-supervision relationship? Is it residing in the... Uh, therapist client relationship or are there other extraneous factors that are leading to all of this stuckness? So it's exploring the multiple replicating systems and how they influence the process of supervision and the process of therapy.
1: So I was just thinking when you are that intentional with those supervision process and the supervisory process, how um, how less likely you know you're going to have slips, Um, or less likely things are going to go under the radar um, because it seems like your framework is very intentional in terms of how you provide supervision and what to look out for and using it seems like everybody to identify a solution to how move how to move forward um, with whatever hiccup it is and so I would see that to be I would take that to be a great benefit and not only receiving supervision, but also providing that supervision. And so I was wondering what you thought, um, thought of in terms of what do you see as the most beneficial in training mental health counseling students?
2: Yeah. I,
1: supervision I or in supervision?
2: Yeah, when I'm supervising students and I try to bring that intentionality, one of the things I hope that does is create a sense of safety. Because, um, you know, you talked a little bit about slip ups and those types of things. If people are having slip ups in therapy and they're worried about uh, that this is not a safe space to talk about that, then they are going to perpetuate those slip ups. And it could be potentially damaging to the client or damaging to, um, you know, their own, you know, it could be unethical. So when I talk about those isomorphic processes and that that supervision, therapeutic presence, my goal is to create a sense of safety where there's the ability to talk about um, whatever might come to mind or whatever concerns the therapist might bring to supervision. And then on the other hand, I hope that that transfers down into the therapy room where therapists can develop that sense of presence where they allow the space for clients to develop that therapeutic alliance, that sense of safety and trust that allows them to talk about those things in a way that gets at more than just, oh, yeah, I got in a fight with this person this week and I'm really upset about it, but can help them explore the slip ups that might be occurring in their life or the negative patterns that keep repeating, so the therapist and client can really talk about it.
0: I think you bring up some really interesting points there because I it is from what I've seen, supervision is definitely a parallel process to the counseling relationship. And so developing that trust, developing that feeling of safety and developing that strong sense of this person, you know, can help me through this. And they're not going to be, you know, evaluating me on every little thing. And um, you know, marking me down or grading me down for every little thing. But as a supervisor, I think that brings into um, a more complicated role because you have to be aware of how that evaluative component might affect that therapeutic alliance and how um, supervisees might feel like you know, magnified. Uh, their their clinical skills are being magnified um, under you. So I think that's that's super important, and I I really appreciate how you. You can call attention to those parallel processes in a way that helps foster that development and growth, um, because I think that's so important, especially in beginning clinicians. Again, but really at any stage of development, and um, in, in terms of
2: clinical skills. Well, thank you. I hope. I hope. I hope my students experience like that, but I don't know. <laughs> You'd you have to ask them. It's something I shoot for, but you know, you don't always get there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I I think being a student myself and having recently gone through this process of becoming a clinician and really stepping into that new identity role, um, that's something that I always appreciated in my supervisor was creating that safe space and creating that place where I could experiment and I could try new things. And if it failed completely with the client, that was okay because he was still there to walk me through it and Pick up the pieces, so to speak. Um, so I, I do think that that's that's really important. Okay, so I think we've heard some benefits
1: to supervision. What um, what have you seen as as challenges that have come up with supervision, and maybe some best practices in terms to na- how to navigate the challenges.
2: So within those isomorphic processes that I was talking about uh, comes what I, you know, what's often referred to as self of the therapist work, right? Being able to understand uh, the work you need to do as a therapist. Uh, And for me, that tends to originate in family of origin work, you know, as a family therapist, I'm always, I'm always interested in how family or relationships influence our lives. And specifically, um, for my theoretical framework, I come at it as a sense of if, if you are, if you're a therapist and you're meeting with, uh, uh, a family or a couple or an individual and they have patterns that are going on in their family that are similar to ones you've experienced and reacted to in your own family that's a lot of times where that stuckness occurs and so for me one of the challenges is as a supervisor again to navigate these dual relationships to help people develop their their awareness of their family of origin patterns, their awareness of how they might be reacting to this pattern and why they might be at reacting to this pattern, and then um, navigating in a way that I can talk about it that maintains my role as a supervisor, not their therapist, and encourages them to think of how their family of origin processes um, go about um, go about influencing their therapy. So one of the ways I do that. Um, uh, is trying to model that process so to overcome this challenge of trying to navigate this in every semester that i provide supervision in our practicum experience i do my genogram for all of my all of the therapists that i'm supervising i talk about all of those things um that influence me as a person that have shaped how i how i am as a therapist and the the patterns that have gone on in my family that i tend to be more reactive to And then throughout the process of therapy or the process of supervision, I um, when we have space and time, I say, hey, we've got a few minutes today. You know, would somebody like to share their genogram with them? And then as we build that trust, as people are able to see uh, their patterns and talk about like, oh, no wonder I'm stuck with this client right now, because I'm reacting to this pattern that's going on because it reminds me of a pattern that happened between these two people in my family or between this me and this person and once they understand that not only can they see options for responding in therapy but potentially if they work with their own therapist because that's outside of my <laughs> that's outside of my role they can figure out how to better differentiate themselves from their own family systems and patterns to be a more present more aware, um, more relaxed therapist, and one that invites that type of of discussion as opposed to replicating the patterns of reactivity that may be occurring.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so important, um, and I know we've talked about this a little bit before on the show. But um, I can come from a psychodynamic program in training, and family of origin is a huge focus of of what we do and of our um, training. And I think that is so important in just raising awareness and reflexivity in terms of how you practice as a therapist and what comes up as blind spots and what could possibly be countertransference or transference between a clinician and client. And um, hearing you talk about that, I just I think it's so important to, to bring that into supervision and, like you said, to have those clearly defined roles between supervisor and your own therapy. Um, But still part of that is seeping into that supervisory role. Well, and I was just thinking just that, like as important as it is,
1: because I really do think it's super, super important to help counselors and and incoming counselors, especially, but and students reflect on their own stuff and who they are. And even if they've taken like one class where they had a few assignments or they had to reflect on it, It should be an ongoing investigative process for a student and for counselors, truly, because really, you can you get stuck in your ways and your own patterns and, you know, we are creatures of habit. So it's important to always check our stuff. So how do you say, let's look at the genogram and let's process this out as a group without like diving too deep, if does that make sense?
2: Yeah, I think so. Um, uh, I I think it's a uh, it has to come with with a conversation up front, right? And talking about the rationality for providing the genogram and what I'm doing it for, right? Because I always say to students, I don't want you to share anything that you don't feel comfortable sharing with the group, and I also say to the practicum group, we can. Um, Take the experiences that we learn from here, but the stories of students that you might be hearing need to stay here. That type of story is confidential in this space. The experience you can talk about, but the details of the story and the relationship are confidential. And so I talk, I I set those boundaries and I try to be very clear about that. And then I just when I am talking about the student and their genogram and when we're processing as a group. I I try to tie it to why do you think these family processes may push you towards one theory or another? Why do you think um, do you think there might be certain clients that would be uh, difficult for you to work with, given the given the patterns that have occurred in your family of origin? And so for me, it becomes a work of working on them as a therapist to see how their family affects their role as a therapist, because as, as a supervisor. That is my main goal, is to get them to be able to self-supervise. And I think part of self-supervision is being able to recognize their own reactivity and where it comes from and how it may or may not, or how they can make it not as have a biggest impact on the therapy process. So it's a, instead of talking about like, oh, tell me about your relationship with your mother and how does that make you feel? It's more of how does that tie into who you are as a therapist and what you bring into the therapy room?
0: Yeah, I think that's so important. And um, you mentioned something, self-supervision. And I'm curious what that looks like for you. So once we you know, graduate and once we're fully licensed and once we move on from being supervised and from, into being a supervisor, how do you continue
2: working on that? So for me, coming at it as a family therapist, I think that there's three key components that I think underline all relationships and even the therapeutic, the therapist, a client relationship. And so that is autonomy, connection, and reactivity, right? So in all relationships, we want to uh, have a sense of connection. We want to feel connected to a, a person and we want to Um, be able to feel like they're there for us and they support us, right? So that might be a process that we want with a partner or a family member. And it's also something that we may want or expect from our therapist, right? We know that the therapeutic alliance, the the security, safety, trust that can come in therapy um, has a big effect on the outcomes of therapy. And then that other piece, though, is this autonomy, right? We want to be able as therapists to give people the autonomy to explore their world, to have a safe space where they can process some of these emotions and then go out and, and explore and pursue their own goals and take the initiative to, to make, to grow and to make those changes that they want. And so, um, also you want to key into that reactivity, right? Because sometimes autonomy and connection. In the middle of that, there's this stress, this tension that leads to the reactivity that therefore fuels patterns of, of, of behavior that are destructive or um, develop symptoms. So when I think about applying that idea to supervision or trying to help therapists become to self supervise. That's what I want. Those are the three things I'm looking for, right? I want therapists to be able to have that therapeutic presence so they can create spaces that can be healing. I also want them to have the autonomy to be able to think about theory and um, research, you know, evidence-based practices so they can go and explore that, think about that, and bring it into the therapy room. And then I also want them to be aware of their own emotional reactivity by looking at the patterns that occur in their family of origin or in their current relationships that might bring up that reactivity. And once I see um, therapists who are able to create that, that space, who are able to use their autonomy to conceptualize cases, to uh, uh, think about theory and the complexity of relationships in ways that they can um, distill it down for clients, and also recognize what things might trigger them and interfere with their role as a therapist. Once they could do that, for me, they've developed the ability to self-supervise.
0: Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And, and integrating those three components is really important in establishing your clinical acumen, but also in establishing that ability to practice on your own and to really go forth and be a clinician. Well, thank you so much, Jacob. We've really appreciated having you be a part of the show um, and and hearing, you know, your perceptions of supervision and some of the work that you're doing uh, at the University of Iowa. Super exciting. And thank you so much for, for sharing that with us today.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me.
0: So thanks so much for listening um, and subscribing to our podcast, uh, Supervision Time on the Pod Talk Network with executive producer, Dr. Marty Gensius and your hosts, Dr. Angela Schubert and Gina Martin.